Well, there you have another episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero. This veteran guest is a quiet professional in every sense of the word. His story is powerful. His experience is even more so. He offers great wisdom, great advice. They're doing great things at, at American Freedom Distillery. You're going to absolutely like this story from retired Special Forces Master Sergeant Scott Neal. And thank you for listening to another episode of Straight Outta Combat Radio. Your steely-eyed killer shadow in the night You were born to fight You gotta light them up My name is John Krotek, and I want to welcome you to Straight Outta Combat Radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero. We're here to honor the wisdom of America's most valuable asset for combat veterans. We're authentic, we're empowering, we're American. Save us all burn it down. Our guest for this episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio, Audio Medicine by Green Zone Hero, is retired Special Operations Master Sergeant and Green Beret Scott Neal. I met Scott a couple of months ago at the Tampa Club at the Gratitude Professor Coming Out Party. It was for a few brief moments, but it was nice to see Scott there to hear a little bit about his story and to watch him get recognition from not only his wife, but from his friends and other family members. Scott was on one of the two United States Army Special Forces teams that put boots on the ground in Afghanistan right after the September 11th attacks on America. Scott and his teammates raised in an unconventional military, militia army actually, of horsemen to engage the Taliban. Within 90 days, 90 Green Berets and the indigenous forces that they helped to train overtook the entire country of Afghanistan. These actions were portrayed in the recent movie based on true events, 12 Strong. Currently, Scott is working to craft high-quality bourbon whiskeys, and they're doing a great job of it. His company, American Freedom Distillery, exemplifies the very best of America. American heroes producing American products with American heart and soul running through it. I got to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, I'm humbled and honored to have Mr. Scott Neal on Straight Out of Combat Radio today. Welcome, Scott. Hey, how you doing today? I appreciate it. Thank you. You're welcome. You know, I'm glad you're here, man. I'm glad you made it back. I know um, some people didn't come back and, you know, my heart goes out to any of the team members that you may have lost while you were in combat or in theater and, uh, I really mean that. But, you know, you're here, man, and your story can help so many people and your company's doing some great things. So thank you. Let's just get to it, Scott. Tell us about the, the Neil household. Tell us about what it was like growing up. A little bit about your background. No problem. You know, I, my family's from Florida and Texas. My mom's side of the family's been here. Original crackers, as I like to say it, since the 1830s. My great, great, great uncles, believe it or not, are on some of the first veteran affairs roles for combat injuries in the Seminole Indian Wars. Wow. I, on my dad's side of the family in Texas, my great, 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 I think add one more great uncle was the commander of the Alamo, James C. Neal, the famous cannons um, of Gonzalez and stuff. So, you know, I had this kind of Lieutenant Dan you know, family history of, you know, my relatives have fought in every war since the revolution. Luckily, not all of them died in every war. But, you know, as a young kid, I always wanted to be in the army. You know, some kids growing up wanted to be a fireman or a police officer, a baseball player or whatnot. 
I had always wanted to join the army. I played cowboys and Indians and cops and robbers and, you know, army soldiers. And when I graduated high school, I went in 1986 into the army, into the infantry. So you went right away to Fort Benning and that was it. What was that like for you? You're taking out of your comfort zone and you're thrown into the army institution where they teach you everything a private should know. I gained some friends out of that. It was back then called one-stop unit training where all of us were then going to as a battalion and to Fort Ord, California in the 7th Infantry Division. So, you know, it's interesting, you know, as my son's in the army now, he met all of these infantry privates, but they went everywhere. For us, we all went through the same training together, and then we were deployed to Fort Ord, California, and it was interesting growing up, you know, all those people you thought were the strongest after basic training, you saw, you know, people perform difference. Uh, You saw when we went into Panama, you know, those you thought were the fittest and the bravest, you know, ended up cowering, and those that you thought were country dumb or whatnot shined the most. So it was interesting growing up my first few years in the infantry and just watching this all develop as young men. And uh, at some point, you know, I, I just like everybody had saw a recruiter and a video about special forces. And I said, that's for me. And that's when I went through selection in 1992 and finally became a Green Beret in 1993. Well, congratulations on that. You know, so you're a long lineage of, you know, American military service from the very beginning of the roots of our country. You know, you already knew from a young age what you were going to do. And then, you know, like most special operators, special forces guys, a little bit of a cut above, not saying it's just, it's a different, you know what I'm saying? It's a different, it's a different type of soldier. And, you know, you have to have that desire. And it's funny you say that, Scott, because, you know, it's the same in mountaineering. The guys that you think are going to make it to the top don't. And, yep. and, the, and the skinnier guys that you think are never going to do anything are up there before everybody else. So very similar. You know, once again, we talk about a military all the time. There's the parade soldier, right? And there's the field soldier. And now that we've been in combat for 17 years, who have really come out of this has been the field soldier, those that are dynamic and understand their job and gets dirty every day. And then you have the parade soldier that, you know, would send his uniform out to get starched and would take their boots to get polished by the guy downtown. You know what I mean? It was just a different mindset on what it took to be a soldier. And, you know, when I went into special forces, I found my home. And what that meant is I was finally on one team. All through the 90s, you know, before, you know, 1999, it's hard to say that nowadays, 1999, uh, I had been on one special forces team. These guys had just gotten back from the first Gulf War. They had fought with the Mujahideen in, you know, the 80s. And here I was, a young Green Beret, fresh out of the schoolhouse, thinking you know everything about your job. And you get on a team where, you know, these guys are older. And at the time, older meant 28. And they had been around the world. They had been in multiple combat operations. They had done unconventional warfare, direct action, special reconnaissance, all of these real-world missions. And that's when the mentoring began. And to stay in one place for, you know, the first seven years, you know, that kind of stability for your family, you know, and for you professionally is what makes special ops and special forces different. Well, I remember growing up, my dad, of course, spent 28 years in the United States Army and got out as a light bird. And I remember Vietnam era, they had Barry Sadler was there. You know, he was the one that brought the whole Green Beret genre or brotherhood 
to the world stage, you know, with the song that we've all heard, Fighting Soldiers yeah. from the Sky. And, and I remember listening to that, man, and, you know, the whole album over and over and over again. And, and I, it was, it sounded glorious, but, you know, when I meet Special Forces, Green Berets, guys like you, it's not usually as glorified as that. There's a lot of work to it. It's not easy to force multiply, which is one of your primary missions that, that people don't, some people understand that, but it's tough work. And, and when I think about you guys, I saw the movie, by the way, you know, who didn't. <laughs> and uh, when I think about you guys, I took my wife to it too. And she normally doesn't go to movies like that. I said, you've got to see, these are the guys that answered our nation's calls call when nobody really knew what the hell was going on. So Thank you for that. And when you got the orders to deploy, you know, without giving away anything, you know, what were you guys ready? Was it were you guys just imagine this, you know, you have the Super Bowl, the World Series, the Olympics, the first mission to the moon all rolled into one 9-11 event. Right. For a special operator. And then, you know, just think about every special operator, current and former that wanted, you know, in some kind of fantasy, be the one that's going to be picked. Oh, yeah. What people don't understand is the criteria, you know, the circumstances led to 9-11, right, that led to uh, units, which obviously, if this would have happened, Al-Qaeda would have been in Central America, you'd be talking to a seventh group team. It would have happened in Africa right, where we needed to go in, you've been talking to a third group team. Because it was in the Middle East and Afghanistan, you're talking to a fifth special forces group team. And why not Delta Force and SEAL Team 6 and all that? They had their missions as well. But the mission that was called for right after 9-11 was basically to find out the truth. Remember, America had all but forgotten about Afghanistan. They left that up to the agency. Uh, We didn't have this intel apparatus. And what was intelligence at the time was tanks and battleships and steel and all this. It wasn't on human intelligence like it is today. So the very first missions were to go in there and sort out who is our allies. Are they willing to partner and fight with us? And that mission is 100% Green Berets. Now, what makes Green Berets different than a SEAL, right, and a Ranger and all of that? I like to say that Green Berets are more mountain men, right, a little older, a little more casual and simplistic in their approach. They don't overly rely on technology. They rely on human skills, right? So the first part was just going behind the lines and sort things out because the bigger mission was the Army and Air or our Marine Corps was going to invade in the springtime. That's how long it was going to take to mobilize, you know, America. And what we found out, though, through quick action is we quickly established relationships. We understood the battlefield through their eyes. We enabled them. Now, the difference between any of the movies that you've seen or the books you read, which portrays the American as a hero, the real heroes were those Afghan Mujahideen fighters, right? Afghans have been fighting others and themselves, you know, for hundreds of years. And it's just part of their life, right? And all we did was, like Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn, is just enable them, right, to achieve what their goals were. They wanted to get rid of the Taliban. We just wanted to not make Afghanistan a safe haven for al-Qaeda. Somehow, switched missions today. Now we don't want the Taliban, right? And, you know, at some point, that wasn't our original mission. Let me ask you this, Scott. 
so you know the I, you know we're not going to talk a lot about the movie, but you know, but you know, you guys jumped in into some pretty interesting terrain. That part of the movie was very nail biting, and but what kept you and your team focused? You know, because you're in there to gather intel. But what but what kept you guys focused? Automatically being surrounded on purpose. <laughs> you look at some of the uh, warriors today and they have these big bases with these big, you know, mobile armored platforms and 18 layers of air support and 10,000 layers of command and supply and logistics. Imagine being alone and unafraid on the mountaintop, right? And surrounded on purpose. Every decision is carefully thought out. Every movement, every engagement with the enemy is practical, right? Because you can lose your life. There is nobody to come get you. There's nobody to come rescue you at any time soon. So everything is thought of differently. Whereas today, you know, if you get in a firefight, that's great. Why? Because, you know, somebody will respond to that firefight and assist you, you know, in no time. You also look at the odds at the time, whether it was a 12 man team or there was three teams or even 90 Green Berets and other special operators, you were facing a army of 50,000 talent. They were organized you know, in traditional military lines with 21st century military equipment, right? So things are flipped today like they were back then for us. So on your own accord, you guys put yourself in harm's way immediately. You're surrounded by hostile forces and push forward maybe a little bit. You know, how, how do you think that that's impacted you or how did that impact you then as it impacts you today? That's once again, you go through all this training, right? Right. And do all the physical fitness, you go to all the sniper schools and, you know, all of these specialty schools to do what? To do the mission. And now imagine doing the mission, the Super Bowl, the World Series, the can't fail your country, right? It was all culminated into one and nobody expected any of us to kind of survive this. There was no expectation. Be as successful as you could be. And then what happened is you started to see basic military formulas work, fire maneuver, right? Supply and logistics. It's always about the fundamentals. I tell a thousand privates when I was a drill sergeant, don't worry about the high speed techniques or equipment. Everything that's going to save you is the fundamentals. And that's what saved us, right? And made us successful against overwhelming odds. You know, the horse itself, you know, as a mode of transportation that's what you guys were primarily using for ground transportation? Well, it started, number one, whenever you link up with the Mujahideen force, you have to assess their capability and why were they using horses? One, because of the train, right? And you had the Taliban that had all the captured Russian equipment. So, you know, it was a natural choice. You know, what people don't understand is then, you know, as the battlefield progressed into a, a few months, you would capture trucks. Well, now you got trucks. Then you would take over Taliban tanks, but now you got tanks. It's like a video game, right? You ever play Grand Theft Auto? All of a sudden, you got a cart, and then you switch to you know something, and then you switch to something. That's what's not portrayed in any of the books in the movie is just how to be adaptive on the battlefield. As you become faster and you're out of the terrain, you then you know overtake conveyance, which could have been Toyota trucks. So the battlefield shifted pretty quickly, but you know. Everybody has a heartbeat in America for the horse and, uh, you know, the image of cavalry charging tanks. And, and it hadn't happened uh, since Pancho Villa's charges in the early 1900s. We have had cavalry 
and it was a limited kind of use. But you saw what uh, armored columns did to the Polish cavalry in World War II, right? Yeah, so it was a terrain difference. So the horses offered maneuverability. Um, it was just, it was a perfect dynamic of 21st century met, you know, 18th century um, battlefield techniques. But out of all of this, it was a Green Beret mentality of being adaptive and being very simple that, that won the day. Along with, if you think about it back then, everybody supported that one mission. The entire military might and complex, intelligence complex, you know, um, law enforcement agencies, everything uh, razor focused back then. And that's where the successes came from. You know, pretty remarkable, too, Scott. You know, there's no it's no gimmick. It's a real story. You know, the teams and along with the people that you trained did that. You know, how, how would you assess the Taliban as an adversary? Is there anything that that stands out? The way of war of the Afghan, and remember the Taliban, there's good Taliban, according to them, bad Taliban and foreign Taliban. Taliban, look at the Revolutionary War. There were militiamen that were farmers that would just rally and call because some centralized commanders said it's time to get your rusty gun and show up. There was bad Taliban, which, you know, religiously wanted to dominate and use, you know, military force to suppress other sub-tribes. And then there was what they called foreign Taliban, religious zealots from other countries that came to learn technical skills, learn how to, you know, do explosive, learn how to do light uh, mortars and artillery so they could go somewhere else and pursue their great cause of jihad. That was the makeup, Right. Um, now, the Mujahideen fighters, what was interesting about them is, you know, they had little to nothing. They had no training. They had no ammunition. They had no food. They had nothing. It was truly a ragtag. But why were they successful? Because they were motivated. They were saving their culture and their way of life. And that's what a Green Beret does. Buy with and through. Absolutely. You know, so it, like I said, it's tough work. It's not easy. You know, some people may glorify that. And that's, you know, the Green Beret. And you know this. And I've heard this as an Army NCO myself, you know, the silent professionals. And, you know, a lot of these guys, we can get to that have transitioned out. And there's a lot of guys out in front. And it seems like a lot of the Green Berets, like yourself, you know, go into business and just do your thing. And and it's admirable. And and so thank you for that. Is 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 there any one thing, Scott... When you were in that that environment that stands out, that was like a holy cow moment or an aha moment. No, and I'm going to tell you because then we quickly went into Iraq. Then we quickly went into Africa. Then we quickly went back to Iraq. So the beginning of, I laugh all the time with our friends, the beginning of the wars are different than the end of wars. Right. In the beginning of wars, you're a pirate, Jolly Roger flag. You make your own rules. Nobody, you know, gets down and dirty. There's chaos in the battlefield. You're a master of everything. You're the fireman, police marshal, mayor, right, district manager. Everything hat you wanted to be It is thorough chaos. The middle of wars became, okay. Let's train another force. You know, let's do some PowerPoint presentations. Oh, you got to go to school. We got to leave the battlefield. You know, then the everyday ho-hum life came in. And then towards the end of the war, we were more cops. We're arresting people. We're doing warrant-like activities. We were searching. 
the missions went from kill to capture to capture, you know, detain to detain, release. And you saw the changes. And the other thing is, is we went from no technology to an abundance of technology, but we're still fighting people. So I went through all of those measures. So one specific incident, I have a thousand funny stories. You know what I mean? I have a hundred combat patrol stories. You know, I have 10, we almost died stories. All of those are, are in something that myself and my friends can relate to. Not something my wife and I can relate to or my outside family. I mean, just, you know, there's so many layered on there. And, you know, it just, you know, at the end of it, you're done. You're off the carnival ride, right? No more e-tickets and you walk outside the park and, you know, that's it. I like to just, I've never heard it described like that. You know, the dynamics of, of combat, you know, beginning of the game, I guess like quarters almost, or, you know, by halftime or what you guys are doing. So, you know, looking back on it now, Scott, we'll move on to the transition and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, I know you served over 25 years. Looking back on that particular event or that scenario, is there anything, of course, you can always second guess it. Is there anything you would have changed? At the time, no, because that's wishful thinking. We did what we did, and what we did apparently was successful, right? Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> we all survived. You know, we survived very, you know, tremendous combat times. You know what I mean? With, with you know, you look back and you go, that was ridiculous. At the time going through it, it was perfect, right? Everything just happened to work together. There was never, you know, in the beginning, it wasn't, you know, reacting to an IED bomb or reacting to an ambush. You know, we were leading every charge and every combat patrol with action right we we were the masters of it so that part was good you know when i look back i see leadership styles right i see the way the focus went away from the team to now the headquarters it became this all sucking you know entity of all information and intelligence that you had the force feed but you wouldn't receive anything back so it was never about your domain you know it was about feeding this, you know, information intelligence mechanism. And then finally is realizing this all over. And that's where the transition part comes in. And I think people have the hardest time. How do you go from that pace being the quarterback to being the second string quarterback? Joe Montana went to the from the 49ers to the Kansas City Chiefs. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Quite the same. And then one day, you know, you're doing used car commercials and Pizza Hut commercials. <laughs> and, you know what I mean? Yeah. Doing some signings at a, at a bookstore. So, you know, that's the new challenge. You're not equipped for what becomes the ultimate challenge at the end of a warrior's life. You know, and you hit it just right. It is a warrior's life. And especially like we, I said earlier, you know, the green beret is a different breed of operator. And uh, if we didn't have green berets, there's a lot of things that wouldn't get done with that type of conflict or, or odd tool. Yeah. You know, in, in the government's toolbox, we're, we're have more training than an F-16 pilot, I tell everybody. We're selected through a complex physical and mental assessment. We're given advanced equipment and communications, advanced medical, you know, and engineering training, all of these skill sets. And I remember as a kid watching, you know, here's, here's the fun part. I watched Rambo First Blood as a kid. <laughs> I had a different view a man alone unafraid with a big knife fighting the law right and a bandana big 
you know, now I watch John or uh, Rambo and you see a different man that's complex and lost and had this tremendous, you know, responsibility from the country. And you come home and, you know, you just you can't you just get grief for who you are. You know, all of those skills today, I thought the day I left that the only economic opportunity was being a contractor and going back to war as a, a contractor. And that's how a lot of our generation sees it now. And uh, I knew I had to break that is I had all the skills that I had, but I thought the only way for me to do it was to be a contractor at the end. So, well, thanks for pointing that out because there are other options available. And, you know, like you say, you guys are good, you know, and you're, you're comfortable in that world and there's jobs out there, but tell us about, well, American freedom distillery is a whole different thing from fighting war. Maybe it's a war of a different nature, but, uh, Tell us about how that idea came about and how and what you're doing. Yeah, I did like everybody else. I went to government contract and I went back to war with Afghanistan. And I realized I'm too old, too fat. The war had moved on, right? I hadn't. So I decided never to do that again. And I had to force myself to say, all right, that's not, I got to burn the boats, which means, you know, I can't look at my old tactical skills. I had to look at what other skills the Army had given me. And what yeah. they give me is, you know, organizational skills skills, prioritization, you know, work ethic, critical thinking, all of those skills which lie dormant in a soldier can never be taken away or go away. So we talked as friends and step one is, you know, go on a journey, discover yourself again. Step number two is find something that motivates you and you have a passion for. So all of those transition formulas I tried to follow. And it led us to discovering something we had a discovered a passion for it. Now, distilling wasn't in my nature. I didn't know anything about it until I discovered how to do it and how much I thought it was cool, right? Factor number one is pretty cool. <laughs> number two is how to make a business out of it, right? Because if not, it's a hobby. And we spent a lot of time analyzing how to make a business and the go at the business. And But we found out then we had two buddies. We had six buddies. We had 10 buddies. Right. And then this turned into an opportunity that if we made this a business and we perform this way, the rewards would be, you know what I mean? Revenue would be, you know, a lifestyle change. It would be something we can give our kids. So that was kind of that transition. Well, American Distillery, you know, the way you point that out, and I haven't heard that story before, but to be able to take these organizational skills and make something valuable out of it. Distilling is not an easy job either, you know. It comes down to how to create wealth for you and your family, right? Right. Or I could work for somebody or I could, you know, work for myself. You know, what am I trying to do? So all those are, were fundamentals that I have learned um, helping with the Green Beret Foundation and developing a transition program. They were all mantras and ideas and thoughts. If you look at 100 transition programs, they all say the same thing. Find yourself. Find your passion. You know what I mean? And educate and steer yourselves towards, you know, that, that opportunity. And so the first thing I did is, uh, I partnered with my friends. One had been a successful businessman. So he knew that financing and fundamentals. So I went to an entrepreneurial course to learn the, the, the terms, the words, you know, that kind of mindset. And that's what kind of brought me into the business side of the business. 
And it's been a remarkable business. You know, you guys have grown. I know it hasn't been easy street, but you guys have grown and you continue to grow and put out great product. I did get a chance to taste it when we were there. Pretty darn good, boy. Definitely bourbon and a, and a good bourbon. Pretty smooth. I think I had the horse soldier. I think that was the one we had, but it was great. And, and congratulations. That was awesome. Mm-hmm. But, you know, so we're going to talk a little bit more about that. But let me ask you this. There seems to be a negative stereotype of veterans out there and especially combat veterans. You know, and you just told a great story of transition and, and a plan. What do you want the civilian world to know about combat veterans, if, you know, from, from your, your psyche, Scott? They're no different than anybody else, right? They have a dynamic experience that shaped their lives. We say that college shapes your life, right? They say being part of a sorority or a fraternity shapes your life. All of these things are, are what built the person in front of you. Somebody, you know, unfortunately, what I believe has happened is somebody's hijacked what a combat veteran is and, and they hijacked it for nonprofit means or for fundraising means or you know what I mean a now if you think about it back in in the American legions and VFWs of the old days in World War II people immediately left the military wars over and they had to go home and they needed a place to come together because there was no internet and if you'd see a guy in there that had one tour, you're like, wow, one tour, you could share the experience. If you saw somebody that had two tours, you're like, hold on a second, two tours. If you saw somebody that had three tours, you're like, this guy's crazy. You know what I mean? Right. Bubs war. You know, what's going on? Well, you come home today and you've got seven, eight, nine tours under your belt, right? This war has lingered for that long. But it's no different than the World War II veteran coming home, the Vietnam veteran. All of that shaped them to grow this great country like it is today. What I think is is adding and distracting is how we let others define who combat veterans are. I, I go to these nonprofit activities and these look at these commercials on TVs with celebrities saying, hey, give 20 bucks. You know, look at Timmy who lost his legs. Poor Timmy. I think the veterans community has let others co-opt what a combat veteran is and what their contributions to societies are. Why? Because some are falling for it, right? Right. See themselves as damaged. I need help. The VA is my solution. I took the opposite way, right? I'll solve my own problem. I'll do it like we did on the battlefield is we'll come together. We'll fight, you know, from the center out. We'll, We'll make some mistakes, but we'll always, you know, move forward. You know, I like the way you say that, Scott, because, and you're, and you're right, you know, we could say the nonprofit world is probably an understatement to say that it's oversaturated, but, you know, there's, and there's some nonprofits that are doing great work, you know, kudos to them. But when you have, uh, you know, 40,000 nationwide, it gets blurred and it does continue on with that stereotype. And I, and I've never heard it said like that either. We're getting a lot of good commentary today that, you know, the veterans in some part have allowed people to co-opt them. And, and and when you have the rest of the world thinking that veterans, especially the combat veterans are nuts, well, you know, we got to help those guys or we got to stay away from them. So that's some really good insight. And I like the way you put that. Yeah. You know, what, what I've noticed on, on some of this is, you know, you've seen a lot of initiatives lately about higher 10,000 veterans. Well, of course you want a veteran. They show up, you know, all the positive about veterans uh, where it usually goes off the rails is because you have a human resource system that, you know, has a plus plus next to your name, right? And you have a young person uh, that probably fills that human resources position. 
that, you know what I mean? They're going off a bias and stereotype. You also have a machine learning mechanism that doesn't see the relevancy of military training, right? When compared to college and life training. So there's some things that need to get fixed and looked at, but it still doesn't change the message. Everybody wants to thank a veteran. That part is positive. But then again, you know, everybody is fearful that the veteran, you know, is a ticking time bomb. The veteran is a challenge hire, a veteran, you, you know what I mean? It has to work out the issues. When are they going to become normal again? And all of those need equal attention um, to be corrected. Let's look at the flip side. Mm-hmm. Let's just say you're a, a man or a woman leaving, transitioning out, and you've seen combat. You know, using your warrior mentality, Green Beret mindset, your drill sergeant foundation, these people, many of them are in a bad place. Scott, what kind of advice would you give to that person that's in that abyss? Um, it's a couple things. Number one, if you were a sergeant and you had privates, right? You knew back then that you were responsible for others and you you did the extra call of duty. We've all been through it, right? There's a difference between being in charge of and just, you know, just kind of being a private. You know, number one, the hard part is realizing let me put it this way. When you leave the military, you leave alone. When you join the military, you just join a group. That's the hardest transition. You, you had a sergeant that took care of you, a captain that gave you orders, a pay station that would pay you, a medic that would treat you. I mean, you kind of came into this board-like system where everybody had a rank and everybody had a position and you know everybody excelled at it. On the combat side, you were unbelievably heroic. You would jump on a bomb for your buddy, you know, the sense of selfless service, all of these qualities. Then the day you get out, you're all by yourself, right? You can't go see a sergeant. You don't have three privates. You don't have a pay person walking you through, you know, these these complexity things of life. So you're a bit naked, right? And it's hard, you know, to walk through the forest alone. And then you start finding people in the darkness, we don't have the VFWs. We don't have the same social clubs that they had in World War II and even Vietnam to kind of find each other again and band together. You know, but it's out there. So if you're if you're feeling dark and empty, you know, there probably isn't too many people to reach in the hole you're in, right? Because they just don't know where the hole is, and that's the hardest part. But then who puts you in the hole? You know what I mean? What did you dig it yourself? You know what I mean? Did you stumble into it because you're trying to do something good? You know, that's where we need help, but you can't just die in a hole. You know what I mean? And that's what we didn't want to do. We are the masters of our own journey. You know, I tell everybody, you may get out, but all those people that are trying to climb a ladder, a veteran has an escalator. You have so many services, so many benefits, so many relationships, so many critical skills that as soon as you start at the bottom, Everybody else is going step to step and the veterans on an escalator. You'll get past them quickly. Some great advice and some good insight. What's the game plan for American Freedom Distillery? And where do you see you guys in the next few years? What's going on? Three things. You know, we have a bold vision, right? Remember, we were told you won't survive and you can never do it. And we have low expectations. That's exactly where we want to be in this business. Right. Nobody thought we'd amount to anything. You don't know how to distill. Well, actually, we've won more awards uh, for bourbon than we have in combat. <laughs> you don't know where money is, you know, how much it's going to take. We solved all of these problems, which others thought were impossible. Why? Because we didn't think they were impossible. So believe. 
Number two is, you know, set a vision and go for it. We, we said a long time ago, what's our vision? A vision is a something that our friends and our families would be proud of, right? We would build a product that would hold up to our reputations, right? That we would be proud of and that our work discipline would allow us to produce enough of it to become profitable. Very simple business goals. If you ask any other company, they have the same vision and goals. And we've achieved them. Why? Because we set them. We set them for each other and ourselves. Um, next, you know, we, we can't give our kids a footlocker full of old medals. That's not my legacy. It does them no value. I didn't fight all of this and beat back the wolves of terrorism. You know what I mean? That I disappear one day and I'm rediscovered in a footlocker in the attic. By starting a business, I've created a legacy. I could pass it down to my kids, you know, both financially and, you know, our names will be on that label for, we hope, the next 200 years. So that's what we're creating is, is that we have a second chapter in our lives and we started with nothing and we have something. That's awesome, that's man. the American dream, right? Absolutely. I said, Find the American, you know, live the American dream. You've been defending the American dream is what? Come to a great country, have nothing, build it with your own two hands, give it to your kids. That's what we're doing. And you're doing a damn good job of it too. So how can people find your product and how can they learn more information the, about the, your the distillery? The product is horsesoldierbourbon.com. Um, we're now in the seven states. It's, it's just like a, a game of risk. You don't want to go too far across the board too fast, right? Your resources and supply chains are limited. Um, so we're in seven states. You, there's some states you can order us online and get, you know, but Here's how you help us is just like the Mujahideen fighters is just be a believer. You get to choose with your checkbook what you buy, right? If, if support a veteran-owned business is the number one thing. I'm past the hire a veteran. I'm into the stage of, of buy veteran products, right? Buy veteran services. We can dig ourselves out of that same hole ourselves. And that's what the community can do, too. You want to help a veteran? Okay, Congress has given us $200 billion for the VA, you know, untold billions for nonprofits. But you know what you could do is you can go buy a lawn service from a veteran. You can go buy a, a financial consultancy from a veteran company. You know what I mean? Those are what Americans can do today. I like that. And it's true and it's real. Let me ask you this, Scott. What does freedom mean to you? Freedom means, you know, the, the ability to do what you set your mind to, right? So we talk about the American dream. The freedom is, is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Back to the Constitution, right? We all want basic life, okay? We want basic liberties to pursue what makes us happy, right? If you want to be a professor, go be a professor. Your passion is this, go do that. And those that interfere with it, what was, what was the terrorist attack of 9-11? It was an attack on our um, way of life, our pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness, um, the American way, right? They didn't like that we had financial power. They didn't like that, you know, we had, um, you know, resources. All this stuff is what they didn't like about us is why we were attacked. Now that we've secured that, be a veteran, go live it. Nothing's stopping you. Zero is stopping you from doing it. Great wisdom, brother. Let me ask you this, Scott. Yeah. Do you have a personal Scott Neal mantra or your own quote or a quote that you live by every day where you get up and put one boot in front of the other? Um, 
you know, it doesn't suck. <laughs> if you sit here, hard work, you know, and exhaustion is okay. Right. Um, sacrifice is okay. All of those, but you got to be going forward. There's a lot of, there's difference between movement and momentum. You can move around in circles all day long and never create, you know, you know, momentum forward. Um, the other part is you got to have a purpose. Why are you here? Right. Are you here for the past? All of those funny things, you know, the, the, the front windshield's so big, but the rearview mirror is so small, right? Why are you always looking in the rearview mirror? Same thing. Have a great service, you know, put that away, you know, go forward into life and use all those skills that nobody can take from you. You can be naked, alone and unafraid, but they can't take those skills away from you. So yeah, go use them. Got that right. That is some great advice. We've been having a good conversation with Scott Neal from American Freedom Distillery and HorseSoldierBourbon.com. He's uh, graciously given us his time. We know is valuable. This company's moving forward because it's got a group of individuals that understand the value of freedom, and they're certainly not going to squander it. So I got to tell you, Scott, uh, I know I'll be seeing you again. Get out there and open your, your billfolds if you like great bourbon. These guys are making it. I'm not sure all seven states. Maybe you can find out on the email, but... You know, buy better, and I and and Scott, I appreciate that. And every time I look at a bottle of horse um, soldier bourbon, it's going to make me think of the blood, the sweat, and the tears of you guys in Afghanistan, where this company found some of its roots. It's going to make me think and appreciate you, man. I I, I really do. I like to tell everybody, freedom isn't free. It's about thirty nine ninety nine, <laughs> which is a good price for what this bourbon tastes like. I can I say it in jest, but once again, yeah. You know, every journey has a beginning, middle, and end, right? We're just in the middle of our lives. You know, I, I hopefully I have another great thing in my life, you know, once this becomes successful. Well, there you go. Great words of wisdom from our guest today. And Scott, thank you for coming back home and thank you for the, what you're giving to the business world. And we know that there's people out there listening to your story. And uh, it's, it's very inspiring to know that Green Berets like yourself made it through the tough transition or are doing valuable things to enrich not only America, but their own lives and the people that they, that they benefit. So thank you, Scott. Thank you very much. And I look forward to uh, talking some more. I'll be seeing you, brother. Thank you. Talk to you later. God bless. You gotta them up before they burn it down. Thank you for listening to another episode of Straight Outta Combat Radio, audio medicine from Green Zone Hero. If you liked what you heard, then tell others about us. Like us and download us. And please remember, freedom is not free, and combat veterans are vital assets. They're not broken.